And welcome to the Department of Metal Antiquities. Where we remember what everyone else has forgotten. It is Nick Cameron of Glacially Musical, and with me as always is Duncan Evans of Duncan Evan Music, Duncan Evan Music, excuse me, Moonlow and various other projects. How are you doing this week, Duncan? Hey, 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 I'm not doing too bad at all, um, Nick. Yeah, um, it's, uh, what is it? It's getting kind of cold. We're getting into winter, but it's all good. Um, listening to some cool music, listening to some music that's not so cool, um, but, um, you know, a good mix. So, yes, everything's fine. How about yourself? Sorry about that. I actually threw my pen at the computer, so I'm going to put it down so that doesn't happen again. <laughs> I had a, I've had a pretty good week, to be honest with you. Um, got some good things on the horizon coming up that I set up for next week. I had a great eBay week, and by the time this actually comes out, I might not even be doing eBay anymore. So thank you for everybody who has paid attention. But I made enough. Uh, I made enough to pay off some bills and buy the new Pink Floyd album, the new expanded version of Delicate Sound of Thunder which is dropping on, as we record this, six days, I'm sorry, five days from now. But as you are listening to this, it is New Year's Eve. So happy New Year's, everybody. Hopefully 2021 comes in with a blessed, blessed bang that makes the world a better place because 2020 has been awful and I can't wait to kick its butt out the door. Yes, indeed. Happy New Year, everybody. While we are talking about New Year's and new things, let's go ahead and segue into this one. This week, we are talking about Rainbow. Yes, um, Rainbow, um, Stranger in Us All, which is under the, the name Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. First time that they used that name since the very first album in the mid-70s. And this album was released in August 1995 um, with a completely different lineup. And no members apart from Richie Blackmore had ever been uh, in Rainbow previously. Um, and again, as is becoming a bit of a running theme with some of these records that we're looking at, um, this was originally supposed to be a Richie Blackmore solo album, but due to pressures from the record label BMG, it's it was billed as Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Um, yeah, the first the band's first studio album in twelve years, and um, to date, it's their last studio album as well. I find it interesting that both because Richie Blackmore has been a member of two legendary bands, obviously Rainbow, which we're talking about today, but uh, also previous podcast subjectish adjacent anyway, Deep Purple. And both of these bands have strong reputations for being a mixed bag of members. You never know who's going to be in them. So when I was listening to this record, and we're not ready to get there yet, but as I was listening to this, because I listened to it today, as I told you before, we started recording as I was cooking breakfast and as I was cleaning the kitchen. And I was thinking to myself, what kept going over and over is what is the rainbow brand? What makes something rainbow? When we were talking about Black Sabbath, when we were talking about Ozzy, when we were talking about Meatloaf and those kinds of things. Those are bands with established sounds and characters. But I'm not a big Rainbow fan apart from the couple of records and the cup and the live album that, Deep, that uh, Brandon James Dio was on. So this was your suggestion. So you tell me what makes a Rainbow album Rainbow? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I'm I'm kind of with you in in many ways. I really really like those um, Ronnie James Dio albums. So there's three. There's Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Then there's Rainbow Rising. Then there's Long Live Rock and Roll. They're all really strong albums with some really brilliant songs. And to me, to me, this they sound like they they really influenced um, like the new wave of British heavy metal bands like Iron Maiden and things like that. Um, and, and they kind of sound like a bit of a precursor to um, the Black Sabbath um, Dio era. Um, and some of Dio's greatest performances are on those records, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it then became, it sort of became Richie Blackmore's solo project. You know, um, he fired the band or the band broke up. I'm not exactly sure of the circumstances of that, but... Um, I think that what, what Richie Blackmore said at the time was that he was tired of kind of playing heavier music, which seemed to only appeal to 
a narrow audience. So I think he described it as something kind of like male nerds is basically what he was kind of saying. And he, and he, he wanted um, he wanted to attract um, a more mixed gender audience. Um, and he thought that doing something a little bit more poppy was going to do that. And it seemed to work, um, you know, stuff like Since You've Been Gone, those songs were obviously massive hits, but didn't sound anything really like... Um, the, the more hard rock, heavy metal rainbow um, that Dio was involved with. So I guess it's one of those where what it became was um, Richie Blackmore's uh, baby that, you know, he he could do what he wanted with. Um, I think what, what is notable about this album is it was kind of billed in a way as a bit of a return to those hard rock roots of rainbow and like, I don't know, the whole style of the album cover, the font and stuff like that. You've got this gothic sort of thing going on. You've got Richie Blackmore standing there in silhouette with his arms out like a kind of scarecrow. Um, and I, I'd never heard this, but but I was sort of expecting it to be a little bit close to the Dio era of Rainbow in sound. And yeah, you know, it sort of is, but... Uh, I've got to say, I don't, I don't think it's quite up there with the uh, with the Dio stuff. Um, but I guess we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that in a minute. Well, this so when you say since I've been gone and those kinds of songs, is that from the the second Rainbow without Dio? Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's been um, a, a few singers, but yeah, exactly. So Since You've Been Gone was like the, the biggest hit that Rainbow ever had. Um, and yeah, that that was, I think that was maybe 1980. I'm just trying to have a look now. But yeah, um, either very late 70s or early 80s. Yeah, I'm not. The, it was Jolyn Turner, I think. I think that was Graham Bonnet. So Jolyn Turner came in a bit later. So it was Graham Bonnet was... He came in in the very late 70s. Um, I think it was 78 and stayed till, uh, I'm not sure, 80 something. And then um, Jolyn Turner came in um, a, a bit later on in the 80s, basically. Um, so there so, were more singers than I knew of. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. So, yeah, I'm just looking now. Down to Earth was 1979, the first post Dio album. And that had since you've been gone on it, and that was Graham Bonnet as the singer. The one after that um, was actually Graham Bonnet was got rid of halfway through. Um, so the, the album after that, difficult to cure. Um, Graham Bonnet had been replaced already by Jolyn Turner. So there you go. So they've had at least four singers. Yeah, because Stranger in a Song is the last Rainbow album, so they had four singers though. Okay, yeah, I didn't even know about Graham Bonnet. So four singers on eight albums—that is not a good. <laughs> no, that, that's that's a pretty heavy turnover. But it, I mean, it was always kind of the way I understood it. Anyway, was a little bit of of Richie Blackmore's plaything. But to go back to what you said about you know the Dio albums influencing the new wave of British heavy metal, definitely agree. Because when you, especially in this, not to get too guitar nerdy, but D or not Dio, <laughs> Blackmore is a a strat player and all the iron mm -hmm. guys played strats and it's and if you look forward from that point in metal it's strange to see guys playing strats not super strats but just regular strats yeah yeah totally agree um yeah and i know the iron maiden guys have been quite open um in saying that uh you know well well um a case in point is um the producer whose name absolutely escapes me now, um, Martin Birch, there we go. Martin Birch, who produced many of the uh, classic Deep Purple albums, also went on to be Iron Maiden's producer of choice for probably about a decade through the 80s. So yeah, they, they've made no secret of being influenced by those classic rock bands. Think about that. If you get your hero's producer, that would be awesome. And then, yep. And he did... I'm not a I'm not a big Deep Purple fan, quite honest. I, I like a little bit here and there, but what, I mean, what I the stuff I like, I love. And, but those Iron Maiden, those Iron Maiden studio LPs, the the song the songs aren't always there. And I love Iron Maiden, and I can say that because they're not an album band; they're a concert band. They're a great live band, but I mean, but their their albums tend to get a little 
little squiffy here and there, but they always sounded amazing. I mean, perfectly done albums. I actually got a couple in the last couple of weeks. I got a couple of uh, original pressings of or original ish pressings of Number of the Beast and Peace of Mind. Mm, nice. We're not yeah. about everybody knows those. Yes, but. I think it's about time. Is there anything else we need to do? We need to set up? Oh, the only thing I was going to say was um, the the singer, uh, Doogie White, who's um, a Scottish singer. So he he had, um, he actually auditioned for Iron Maiden and was beaten by uh, Blaze Bailey. So this was around the same time, sort of in the early 90s. Um, and at some point around this time, he sent a tape off, a demo tape to Richie Blackmore which was at some point somehow picked up by Richie Blackmore's wife, Candice Knight, or his partner. And um, at some point, I guess when they were looking at doing what became this album, when it was meant to be a Richie Blackmore solo album and they needed a singer, somehow Candice Knight, I believe, um, came across this cassette that had been, I don't know, lying around in their house that had been somehow sent through. And she listened to it and she liked what she heard and she passed it on to, to Richie, who then uh, loved Doogie White's vocals and um, gave him a call. <clears throat> and when Doogie White got the call, he did not believe that it was Richie Blackmore and he thought it was one of his friends just um, having a laugh. So he said, um, OK, if you're really Richie Blackmore, then tell me how there's a solo and I forget the track now, but there's a solo on the album Stormbringer, which was just before Richie Blackmore left the band because he was not happy with the direction it was going. And apparently he played this solo really kind of half heartedly with, with one finger. So he played it like on purpose as a statement of defiance. He played this melodic solo with one finger and then basically walked out of the studio and left. So uh, Doogie White asked this guy so you know if you're really Richie Blackmore what what's the piece of trivia about how you played that solo before you walked out of the band Deep Purple and he, and and of course Richie Blackmore said well yeah I played it with one finger and then and there you go so then Doogie White believed him and uh and there you go it was Richie Blackmore and um he got to sing with his hero so it worked out all right for him so that that was in Rockstar so did you see the movie Rockstar no. Don't. Okay, one, don't. Okay. <laughs> it sounded like a great idea. It was loosely based off of the Tim Ripper Owens story. Yes. So in, you got Richie Blackmore. We'll count Rainbow as well, I guess. So you've got Rainbow, Judas Priest, and Iron Maiden all changing up their singers all at one time. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I took a little bit from all of them, but that, that was one of the things is Richie Blackmore calls him up and he immediately hangs up on him. It's like, no, go away, click. Because he, he hmm. fired from his tribute band. But anyway, the last thing I want to say about this album, and I think it is worth mentioning, I would even if I didn't, I'd still say it, and I would still say that it was worth mentioning, but Richie Blackmore is the producer on this album. And it is worth mentioning i should not use that term twice in the span of two seconds but a producer on an album is like a director in a movie so yeah. just i want to get that out there before we get into this album before we get into the track by track i just want to say want to thank curtis doer for sponsoring this show curtis doer runs a pr company called doer pr i as a journalist, personally, I have worked with Curtis over and over for years. He gets great bands. He is somebody you definitely want to check out if you are in if you are in the, the heavy metal, hard rock genres of music. The best way to not be covered on this show, so that people remember your album, is to work with Curtis Dewar. Yeah, and I can personally vouch for Curtis as well. Um, I worked with him for my latest album, which is the the Moonlow album, and it it was great working with him. Um, um, you know, he did me a really good deal, and um, he got me a lot of interviews and a lot of reviews and a lot of exposure that I wouldn't have otherwise had. So I was very happy with that. But let's move on to. Stranger in Us All. And I have honestly forgotten the name of this album every time I meant to say it. But I've got Wikipedia pulled up, so I've got it in front of me. That's 
there's a good harbinger. I'm going to ask Duncan to uh, give us the names of the names of the songs this week. So let's uh, start off with the first one, which is called I don't know what. Wolf to the Moon. Wolf to the Moon. That is awful. Continue. Yeah, I mean, okay, so so look, it started off and it's got quite a cool riff, and I thought, yeah, all, all right, this is not bad. The vocals come in, they're a bit Dio-esque, not as strong, let's face it, they're not as strong as Dio, but, but Doogie White is a great singer. Uh, then it kind of hits this chorus part, and it's very catchy, um, kind of like Later Rainbow, maybe. Um, so, I don't know, I mean... I suppose alarm bells start to ring a little bit at this point. It's not a bad song, but the drums are so 80s in their production. It's got that gated reverb sound um, where the, you know, for, 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 if you don't know what I mean by that, it's where the drums sound kind of really big and almost unnaturally big and kind of plasticky is probably a good way to put it. Um, and uh, I don't think the song's up to the early rainbow standards. And I'm just thinking, hang on, this is 1994. Five. So we've got bands like, I don't know, Soundgarden, um, Faith No More, um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We've got all this stuff going on. And this is so, so 80s in its production with, with these big keyboards and stuff. Um, I don't know. I've just talked a lot there because um, I felt like I had a lot to say. But I don't know. What do you think, Nick? My, my first thought, because I didn't, when I listened to this album, I just Google, I just pulled it up on YouTube had it on my speaker in my kitchen and I was listening. And so my first thought was who is the singer? And it sounded, as you said, to me, it's this album or the song was very Dio and Blackmore. It's it's it, this song anyway, sounded very much like that. And it also seemed a little bit like Dio era Sabbath, like the, the later days, the dehumanizer days. Yeah. It's a good thing and a bad thing. Cause to me, that's not what I think of when I think of rainbow with rainbow. I think of like dark side, and I'm not a big Rainbow fan by any stretch. I'm just going by the Dio years because that's that's what I really like. Because Dio is just, I mean, Dio is Dio is Dio, and that's just like it's like a dark side of Deep Purple, where Richie Blackmore does you know tighter riffs and a little sludgier. This yeah. So, but to me, this so on too much of Sabbath's kind of brand in this one, the Dio era Sabbath. That was my thinking anyway. It's This was probably the best song on the whole album, which is unfortunate. Yes, this is, this is the thing I have to say. I'm going to say now, for me, this album, apart from, well, look, we'll, we'll talk about it as, it, as it as we go through, but largely this album deteriorates for me as it goes through. Yeah, I thought this was quite promising. I thought it was a bit, a bit poppy in the in the choruses, but okay. Rainbow went and went on to become a kind of poppy band in the eighties, and it was quite quite a good song. Um, yeah, but I, I guess so. Yeah, I guess I guess that's it for that one. You know, I thought good song, but maybe not quite up to the early Dio era standards, but you know, quite promising. Um, so then we get into track two, which is called "Cold Hearted Woman." So. Yeah, did you do you remember this one? Uh, I thought it was a groove riff. the The rhymes were horrible in the lyrics. Galloped. There was a solo in this one for a change. Yeah, it's lyrically speaking, from top to bottom, this album is crap. Yes, and I think that's what comes from. I I wouldn't ever think of Richie Blackmore as a famed lyricist or a lyricist in general. And, yeah, and, and I don't know if he wrote, I know that the songs are generally, yeah, Do, Doogie White is credited on every song apart from the covers. So I'm guessing that Doogie probably wrote the lyrics, but I don't know. Um, yeah, they're pretty cliched, aren't they? I'm, I'm sorry. One, I need you to stop saying Doogie. Apparently that's what that's how he pronounces it because <laughs> I've heard him in interviews and that's how he says it. <laughs> Doogie Hauser, MD, the, the the show from the late eighties, early nineties in America. I do not know it. I do not know it. Who Neil Patrick Harris is? Yes. Uh, no, I know the name. I'm sorry. I know. I know the name. That's it. His, his other big role was How I Met Your Mother. He played 
Uh, okay, yeah, I know, yeah, I know that. Yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah. Big Break was a TV show called Doogie Hauser, MD, where he played a 16-year-old, 16-year-old doctor, general practice. Yeah. So whenever I hear Doogie, whenever you say that, I keep thinking of Doogie Hauser. <laughs> Moving forward, this, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming he wrote his his parts and. It, it, this is a lot like Forbidden, where the lyrics are really cliche and, you know, moving forward with this one, it's, this album isn't bad, but it is so far from being essential and so far from the Dio Rainbow albums that, you know, I, I, yeah. I get why I don't remember it. I get why I didn't hear about it, but yeah. You know, it's it's if you're gonna do a comeback album, or if you're gonna do a solo album, I think you need to. If you're gonna bring in an unknown singer like Doogie Howser, MD, you <laughs> do, you need to write his lyrics at, at at the earliest, or at least give him a topic. And I mean, what what are we on? Are we on the second track or the third track here? We're on the second track. Yeah, cold-hearted woman. Cold-hearted woman. Okay. In 1976, that would have been considered a revolutionary and reasonable thing to write about. In 1995, when we are post-grunge at this point, yeah, we are, you know, we're at the stripped-down era of the 90s where you didn't overdub, you didn't do these huge choruses, you didn't have that wet snare drum. And here we are doing, you know, it's like they're shooting for the Top Gun sequel soundtrack. Exactly. It really, it really is like that. And it's strange because there is, there is actually, you've mentioned that it's Richie Blackmore producing. Now the credit I can see here on Wikipedia, it says Pat Regan and Richie Blackmore. So it's like, what I'm thinking is, I don't know, whose idea was this to, to produce it in that way? Was it, was it Richie Blackmore just being completely out of touch and saying, no, this is what I think rock music is and I'm kind of still living in the 80s, so that's what we're going to do? Or is this guy Pat Regan, who I've never heard of and doesn't have his own Wikipedia page, was it his idea? It, it seems really strange. It's like they kind of needed to work with a producer that could not make not make them into a grunge band or something silly like that, but could just adapt the sound to take away the elements which were going to date it to to completely the wrong era. Um, because it's, it's full of these, I've, I've written here for this second track, there's like this cheesy string synth that takes away from the heaviness. Like there's, there's some riffs here which could be quite nice and heavy and meaty, but they're often doubled with some sort of well, either there's a synth pad or a kind of some some sort of synthesizer sound that just takes it right back to the eighties and kind of strips it of its heaviness and, like you've said, takes it into Top Gun territory. You're absolutely right. There is nothing on this album that doesn't have synth. It's all got some sort of synthesizer, and yeah, that's the rainbow sound. That's the deep purple sound, but. Usually better. Yeah. When I think of um, Man on the Silver Mountain, Rainbow in the Dark, these songs, yeah, they've got synthy keyboards from the late 70s. But yeah. it's heavy. It fits. You know, it's not like, oh, well, we need to have this here. It doesn't, it never felt like an afterthought. It always sounded like they wrote it that way. Yeah. I would honestly say in this case, you could take off, all the synths pretty much and instantly the album would sound heavier more powerful and far less cheesy and it's such a shame and we'll, we'll get onto this more as we go on because okay at the moment we're on just like general slightly 80s string style orchestra synths but later on it really does go a bit weird with the synths I and mean, really strange but uh, anyway, look, it's got a catchy chorus. It's all right. So at this point, I was still kind of thinking, all right, I'm going to give this a chance. The vocals were a bit Glenn Hughes-esque, I thought, in this. Um, again, can't fault his voice. Um, not necessarily as distinctive or powerful as Dio, but he's great. He's hitting the notes and he's he's strong and versatile. Um, poor man's Dio. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so we're on to the next track, which is Hunting Humans, Brackets Insatiable. Who wrote that down? <laughs> Who wrote down Hunting Humans? And then somebody came by and looked at it with, you know, <laughs> really put this through. Parenthesis, Insatiable. Nailed yep. it. Going on break. <laughs> this one, it's, it's got strange vocals. Uh, here we are into, again, that 80s thing where everything was over-processed. Yeah. In 1987, 1988, 1989, maybe not quite 89, it wasn't weird to have synth drums where you're playing them, but it's, you know, the, the, synthy, the synth pads, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It wasn't weird to have these over-processed vocals with the echoes and I, I never was a vocalist so I don't I can't speak to too much but you know what I mean yep in 1995 you look like you're walking into a union meeting with a top hat and a monocle if you do this <laughs> and not like this album is so great that the proletariat is going to put down their pitchforks and leave their union meeting and go, these guys are all right. No, it, it's anyway, but it, it's got a bass in this drum riff, which is just boom, 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 boom. And I'm just like, what is this? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a completely powerless song. And that was what made the rainbow that I know and love great as the songs were powerful when d when you have a singer as powerful as dio everybody else has to fill the vacuum or it's going to be just totally man totally um yeah i think it's meant to be like dark and spooky and driving but it's just it needs to be heavier and less 80s and i have to say there's some great guitar lines i mean i've always personally i've always been a very big fan of richie blackmore's guitar playing i like the fact that he mixes the sort of improvised blues style with the precision and the technicality of classical music but without it, go, for, for me, a lot of the 80s guitar players, where they got really into two-hand tapping and things, for me, a lot of that's too much. Um, yeah, so, so there's some great guitar lines here. If you're a fan of Richie Blackmore and he's playing, then there is, there is quite a lot throughout this album. That not, I'm not saying it's his best stuff, because I don't think it is, but there's a lot of stuff that you will enjoy if you just can't get enough of hearing Richie Blackmore play lead guitar. Um yeah, and I didn't think it was that memorable. Big vocal harmonies on the chorus, but it's not that memorable. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess that's it for that one. Um, then we get to track four, Stand and Fight. Hang on. Big vocal harmonies in 1995? Yeah, exactly. You know, you said this is a good album if you're a fan of Richie Blackmore. I disagree. <laughs> so far up to this point, I mean, I like Richie Blackmore's work. I'm not, you know, I'm not a super fan, but everything has been so vanilla up to this point. However, the next song will change that. We're going to put away the vanilla scoop. Go ahead. Stand and fight. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. I think this is where I started to, this is where it went wrong for me. The, up until Up until this point, I was very willing to give this album a chance. And I thought, you know, um, this could get really good. When this track came on, I kind of thought, ah, I don't think it's going to get brilliant. Not that it's all terrible, because it's not, but this track, uh, I don't know, it's like upbeat rock and roll pop with a harmonica, terrible keyboard strings. I just thought the whole thing was lightweight and half-hearted, apart from the guitar solo, which I quite liked, but eh, I don't know. It wasn't, this was not for me at all. Okay, for me, this is a classic 70s riff. You got that harmonica, because everybody in the 70s, all the big bands in the 70s were blues-based rock. Black Sabbath sure. blues. Led Zeppelin was blues. Deep Purple was blues. They were all blues. So you've got this classic 70s blues riff, and you got the harmonica going with it. And then it completely changes away from that into Southern rock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They must have had this one on by mistake. <laughs> they they must have screwed up on this one and 
they marked the wrong tape because that's the only way that song could have gotten onto this record because it makes no sense. It is just this Southern rock thing that was a blues thing and now they don't know what they are and I don't know what this album is. I'm lost. Exactly. This, that, you're right. This is the point where I became lost with this album where, yeah, the style of this song makes no sense at all. I don't even know... It's like they've stopped even trying to make it sound like Rainbow. And it's just, I don't know, it's just Richie Blackmore just doing a song that because he likes the song, even though it has nothing to do with anything else. I don't know, man. So, yes, that's that's what I thought about that. Unfortunately, that was the turning point where I started to think that I'm not going to come away from this really loving this album. I'm, I'm not going to, yeah, it's not going to be up there. It's either totally vanilla and it's just it's so vanilla to the point of being boring or it's so weird that it's like, what is this even doing here? Yep. Totally. I totally agree. So, okay. You've just mentioned Led Zeppelin and the next track, Ariel or Ariel, they pronounce it on, on the, uh, the vocals. I thought that so it starts off with essentially almost the, when the levee breaks, drums it's that slow drum groove not quite the same but very similar um and then we go into some heavy rock riffs with that eastern kind of influence uh they, they're using some eastern scales and it all sounds it kind of sounds like a, a bit like cashmere by led zeppelin that, that's what it reminded me of most but a more 80s version even though we're in 1995 and also a bit like white snake also who are also massively influenced by zeppelin of course um, but ruined because the production's too light. They don't allow those riffs to really be heavy. You've got the keyboards kind of doubling them and pulling the ferocity out of them. You know, I love hearing you say these things with your accent, because to me, you have the most amazing English RP accent. And maybe I'm wrong, but I choose not to be. <laughs> I've got a strange drawl that's a bit northern and a bit southern because I, I live in the north, but my um, parents are from the south. <laughs> you have what we consider to be the English accent over here. And when sure. you have that accent, either you know the English RP or the you know the Canadian Ontario accent that Curtis Dewar does not have, mm -hmm. it's so polite and so intellectual so in, in America. So we, we were okay with that. And to hear you just talk about how awful this song was. <laughs> and this is, anyway, moving forward. This is the point where I'm like, okay, they're playing more up-tempo hard rock, which is so off-brand, so out of place. And it, this is when I realized, okay, we're shooting for Top Gun 2. That was the moment that it just clicked for me. This is... They're, they're trying to be on the the, new, the next Top Gun. They're, I don't even think there was a Top Gun 2. I don't remember. But if there no was, idea. They, were, they wanted to be there. And it's just, it just felt like this was 1987. In 1985, yeah. after that whole point was looked at by the entire world as silly. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. How this album is, is it's, it's kind of silly. It's weird. It's it, unfortunately, it is, yeah. Long but it feels so long. Yes, yes. That's not good. No, I totally agree with you. It's 50 minutes and it feels like 90. <laughs> so the next track, which I guess would be, I don't know if they even did this on vinyl, because I guess we're kind of past the vinyl era really, but I guess this would be the halfway point because it's uh, 10 tracks and we're now on track six. So um, maybe it will be side two if it was on vinyl. Too Late for Tears. Um, starts off, you've got quite a cool riff. You've, you've got a riff that reminded me of like Man on the Silver Mountain or something for about five seconds. And then this is where it just started to get really weird. You've got this orchestra hit, that classic like 80s sound, like, you know, like the start of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme tune, orchestra hit. And you just think, what are you doing there? Um... It kind of redeemed itself, did this track. I thought it was all right. I thought it was one of the slightly better tracks. Um, I thought there were some good guitar lines, um, fast and driving, a little bit heavier, a little bit more guitar heavy. But I don't know. It's all a bit forgettable. Um, I, good singing, 
I don't know what you thought. What I just said was about this song. Okay. But I, I also did some, some Googling while we were while you were talking. And yes, there was a vinyl release of this record. Ah. Going for $110, I'm going to keep my money. Yeah, I recommend people do the same. Um, you can hear it on YouTube. Um, yeah, I see what you mean. So you were talking about the up-tempo hard rock, and that's what we were referring to there. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, let, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, now this, okay, I don't know what you thought about this one. I have, I'll in a minute, I'll read out what I put. Black Masquerade. Um, yeah, did you, did you have any thoughts on this one? It's take away the harpsichord, okay? <laughs> as a harpsichord, you know this is around the same time as King Diamond drops the Spiders' Lullaby, which that's my favorite King Diamond record because that was the first one I had. Mm-hmm. I'm nostalgic, and okay, my cat is sleeping under a CD. But anyway, but when King Diamond does the harpsichord, it's creepy. It's not goofy like the Adams family. It's, you know, gothic. And Richie Blackmore drops that harpsichord and he's playing the exact same thing as the riff. So it's a harpsichord melody line into the guitar line. It doesn't make this song any less bland. It's still a bland, boring song. And if I could, I would have skipped the damn thing. Yeah. I mean, my first comment on this is oh dear (laughs) i've put silly riff silly sound sounds like the final countdown but more cheesy um there's a there's a ridiculous demonic laugh at the start ha 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 and it just sounds laughable it doesn't sound demonic in any way and i've just put ill-advised this is at least 10 years too late um and one of the lyrics is, now you'll see the dark side of me. And I've just put, uh, no. <laughs> it's like, it's not dark. It's just silly. Um, the harpsichord, what on earth is this? I've put, I just don't understand why they thought that was a good idea. It's terrible. If um, right, a harpsichord is amazing. I yeah, oh, yeah, sure, sure. No, I don't, I don't um, have any problem with the harpsichord in principle. Just where it was the, the way it sounded here the way they used it was just bad yeah well, completely well it wasn't bad it was pointless yeah yeah if you're gonna throw a harpsichord onto this creepy dark metal song you gotta do something with it and instead you just have it playing along with you underneath or overneath as i put it for like it's like it's like almost black metal it's got those black metal keyboards that are overneath they're not underneath but they're not over top they're in the middle there and it's just it's but it's still so bland he tries something completely new and odd and off the wall and it's still boring yeah no it's it's not good that for me this was that was the worst track on the whole album um and me this is when i Earlier, we know we talked about when we both had that moment of this is not going anywhere. And mm-hmm. this is where I went, you know, I was spending more time thinking, how am I going to get that coffee stain off my sink than I was how great this album could be? And that's when I, you know, I, I think it was around this time that I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll have another pot of tea. Why not? I just got it. I had some Scottish breakfast, I have some English breakfast now. And, that that became a lot cooler than this album, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, it it is, but but that's that's how it is, man. But yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Okay, so track eight Ugh. um is called Silence. Um, it was not. It was not silence. Um, it definitely wasn't silence. Some people might have wished it was, but it wasn't. Um, yeah, I mean. I get it starts off okay, and then the, I put the riff is quite good, but then it's ruined by this utterly ludicrous brass synth. So they've got the, a really awful synth sound mimicking like a brass section. Wait, wait, wait! Do sing sing that synth because again, I, there there is a song 
that I have on here where I need to explode and blow up over a synth that was there. I want to make sure we're not talking about the same one. So could you sing it a little? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> so it's kind of like, bah, bah, bah. you've got that type of sound going on. Okay, this is next, uh, next one. Okay, okay. Uh, for me, this song, uh, here's, here, I'll just read you my notes. The more I hear, the less I understand. It's like Sabbath now. These songs are either the exact same old, same old, or seeking a new identity, and it's so off-putting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how I feel about this whole stupid album. Yeah, yeah. Boring or totally stupid. Yeah, and again, like you've got, it's like on the last track, you had a good guitar solo. And again, this one has a good, I'm not saying they're his best guitar solos, but they're, they're quite good, but they're kind of undermined by the silly nonsense going on in the background. Um, agreed, completely agreed. When he plays a solo, and he doesn't play that many. True. What's so weird about this album to me is, you know, as you, as you pointed out, this was supposed to be a solo record. Yeah. I'm a lead guitarist of the, stature and ego of Richie Blackmore. I am gonna really rip it up all over this thing. And he barely does. True, true. Yeah, um, uh, what was I gonna say? That's right, there was some quite good vocal harmonies. I thought they were reminiscent of Bernie or Deep Purple, which was nice, that was great. But then, yeah, but it just doesn't last long before we get into some silly stuff, uh, basically. Um, this one is even worse. Well, so now we're on to the Hall of the Mountain King, which is the da 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 You yeah. know, everyone's heard that. That's the one I'm blowing up on. Right. Thank you. Okay. Uh, you may go first. Okay, well, look, base, so so Candice Knight, Richie Blackmore's partner, has written some lyrics to it. It didn't have lyrics. It was an instrumental piece by Grieg, I think. Um, she's written lyrics to it. Uh, sorry, sorry, Candice Knight. Um, I don't think they're that great. So it's like, mysteries of ages told, stories now will unfold. Tales of mystic days of old are hidden in these walls. I'm not going to carry on. Um, it, it's, it's not. It's not great. Um, in in the UK, we have a theme park called Alton Towers, and the Hall of the Mountain King is the theme tune for the Alton Towers adverts for this theme park and uh, the, sad, the sad thing is the uh, the Alton Towers theme version is probably darker than this version which just comes across as kind of silly um yeah look I, I don't know that's it's a bit like power metal gone wrong in places um I don't know it's, I think it's your you, you need to blow up over this one hear me out I'm not joking when I get to the point and you're going to be surprised <laughs> It's a, it starts off with a you know a little half gallop riff, okay. Some keyboards, okay. So we're we're shooting for that, you know that rainbow in the dark kind of kind of song, man on the silver mountain kind of thing. It's doomy. It's a doom progression, but it's played up at mid tempo, so it's stupid. So everything <laughs> they've done up to this point is stupid, and then all of a sudden, sing that riff again, please. Inspector Gadget. Yeah. It's the Inspector yeah. Gadget theme song. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it is. The Inspector uh, Gadget theme song is on a rainbow record. The whole. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, Inspector Gadget. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I, yes. I, it's like seriously? How did no how did nobody notice? How did this get through? How did they put the Inspector Gadget theme song onto a metal record? <laughs> I don't know if that was the synth or if it was Richie Blackmore or what, but it's like seriously? I'm done. Yeah. The, no. uh, I'm just gonna read my last note and then we'll get to the sum up, which I don't know that we need to do because we've summed this up pretty well. Uh it's just when it's not the Inspector Gadget theme song, when it's not this weird blue, it's just completely forgettable, mindless pap. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Um, we've still got one song left, which is Still I'm Sad, which is the cover, a cover of the Yardbirds, which actually appeared on the first Rainbow album as an instrumental. And it's really quite, it's a really cool track, quite mournful. Um and actually, they've 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 brought the the, um, the vocals back in the lyrics, um, and they're quite good because they're not written by not written for this album. It's a Yardbirds song. Um, I thought this one slightly redeemed 
I'm not saying it's enough to redeem the whole album, but um, if I was going to play anybody, if I was going to play someone a track from this album, I'd play them either the first one or this last one now, this cover. I thought it was quite good. The synths weren't too um, overbearing. I didn't get in the one too obtrusive. Um, and it, I put, it sounds vaguely convincing at being sort of dark and sort of powerful. Um, and I thought the solo was great, actually, the guitar solo. Um, so solos on this record are bad. They're yeah. good. They're all melodic. They're all classic Blackmore, if not his best work. The problem is everything else. Yeah. And I agree. You know, when you say, oh, the synths weren't too much on this one, that's damning with faint praise, as my father in law would say, because he's old and uses old phrases. That's a no, good it's a good phrase. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And on this one, I keep thinking, because again, I wasn't paying real close attention. I would think the songs would be over, and then they'd go into the chorus. It's like, what the? Oh, okay. I guess that's still going on. It's, uh, I don't have anything specific to say about that particular song because I didn't even know that was a different song. I couldn't tell. Um, <laughs> this album is just a mess. It is a yeah. mess. It is. And I know for the most part, we're pretty positive about these things because, you know, in any given year, there are about four million records released. And, you know, when you think about an album like the Black Album or Dark Side of the Moon or just a million seller in America, everyone has it. But for every million seller, there's 20 or 30 that nobody heard of. And that's this. I like to think that we're mining for hidden gems for something that we can look back at like born again. Now, the first time we listened to that together, I didn't, I didn't like it. It took me, it took time for me to get that one. There's not enough time in the world for me to get this record. Yeah. I think it's one of those things we, that a lot of these records that we look at, they are forgotten unjustly, you know, they should have been remembered there are reasons why they were forgotten, but actually musically they're pretty good or even great and they deserve to be revisited and they deserve that attention. There's other times when actually when we, when we listen back, we think ah, there's a reason why this was forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, unfortunately this time round, I, I think this was a low point for Rainbow I think it was probably a bit of a low point for Richie Blackmore. I mean, look, you know, no disrespect to anyone involved. I'm sure they were all trying to do good thing. I mean, you know, the musicians are great. They're, they're playing well. Um, Doogie White's a brilliant singer. As a, as a whole, though, it, it doesn't work. It's not a great album. And even if it was released in the 80s, it wouldn't be at the high end of, of, of that sort of music. But being as it was released in 1995, it's just it's kind of unforgivable that they've gone so 80s or just, un, it's just, or, or it's difficult to understand why they would make those decisions because it's so 80s and it's so overblown in it's synthy weirdness um, that it just makes no sense whatsoever. And then you've got on top of that songs, which are kind of average, which just are not that strong. So, you know, I tried to like it because I really like that early rainbow stuff. And I hoped this would be a kind of return to that sort of sound. Yeah, it slightly is, but it's just not, it's nowhere near as good. And unfortunately, it kind of makes a mockery of itself. When you talk about, you know, it's very 80s in a time well past the idea that we could look well past the time when we took it seriously and well before we, we look back at it nostalgically. Yeah. If it comes out 10 years later, yeah, it's 80s. Okay, yeah, Steel Panther's big stay. Steel Panther's big now. So maybe, you know, maybe we get there. But, and, and to talk about, do, do, to uh, bring up Doogie again, you know, you're right. He did sing wonderfully and powerfully. His vocals on this album and his vocal melodies are really good. But the songwriting just isn't there and not trying to be mean to anybody or anything like that. Just giving my honest opinion because that's what we're doing here. And art is subjective. Some people are gonna love something. I have been routinely made fun of by a good friend of mine 
for being the fan of the Island of the Misfit Toys, which is a lot of how this podcast even got started. I like the strange, wacky albums by bands that nobody else does. This one is, it's, it's just, it doesn't work for me on any level. I will yeah. never listen to this again. Yeah, I've got to say, I'm with you there, Nick. Um, you know, I think this is one of those, we listen to it, so you don't have to. Completely. And, you know, we should say every week whether, you know, bin it or spin it. I say bin it. Yeah, I say bin it. But I would I would give the caveat that I think if you're a Richie Blackmore obsessive, if you're a guitar player obsessive, it's not it's certainly not full of um, gold to mine, but you will find there's some nice playing on it. If you could ignore the silly music that's often in the background, then there's, you know, you've got Blackmore being Blackmore and he's a very gifted guitar player. But other than that, it has, nah. it has the Inspector Gadget theme song. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you can do to bring this back into focus after you've done that. Mm -hmm. It's kind well, of thanking Hitler at this point. You know, if you're if you're a metal band and you're trying to be serious and get it going, and you bring in the Inspector. I mean, what was Richie Blackmore drunk and hung over on a Saturday when Inspector Gadget comes on? It goes, it's <laughs> the song. I just how I'm sorry. It, it's like thanking Hitler to me. We have just gone so far beyond the pale that I can't, I, I'm done. And this fittingly is the last Rainbow album, which it should be because the Inspector Gadget theme song was on. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Well, on that note, I think that's about all we need to say about this record, um, isn't it? So, frankly, we've said too much. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's it. I guess we're done. So until next week, uh, it's Nick Cameron, Duncan Evans, Department of Metal Antiquities. We will hopefully do better for you next week. Thank Indeed. You. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Thank you for listening. If you have not, please do subscribe. We are on all of the spots. Please rate and review. Have a great week. Thanks. Thanks.